Scripture this morning goes back to the garden is Genesis 3, beginning in verse 1. Now, the serpent was more crafty than all the other wild animals that the Lord had made. And so he said to the woman, did the Lord God said that you could eat uh, of, of any tree in the, in the garden, of the fruit of any tree in the garden? And the woman said, we may eat of the fruit of any tree in the garden, but God said of the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, we must not eat it. Or touch it, or we will die. The serpent said to the woman, you will not die. For God knows that when you eat of the fruit, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. And so when the woman saw that the fruit was good for food and pleasurable for the eyes and desirable for wisdom, she took some of it and ate it. And she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it as well. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated, please. And even though the dust has settled from uh, or is settling from the midterm elections, I would still say that we live basically in a country filled with a lot of anxiety. There's so many things that trouble us and and threaten us. We have ISIS on the outside and yet maybe even ISIS on the inside. We have Ebola in West Africa, but maybe in Texas as well. Uh, We look at the stock market and we wonder, well, how much longer until it goes through some major correction? We look at our children. And say, what kind of world will they inherit? There's so many things that can cause us anxiety in our life. And the problem is that we are never our best selves when we are anxious. I subscribe to the family system um, uh, theory, which I learned in uh, faith walking, and it can be summed up in one sentence. Anxiety makes us stupid when we are anxious. When we are fearful, when we are threatened, sometimes we respond in ways that are all out of proportion to the perceived threat. Uh, we, we make actions that are not our most prayerful or thoughtful self when we are anxious. Anxiety makes us stupid. Uh, Daniel Goleman, back in 1996, wrote a popular book, you may remember it, called Emotional Intelligence. And he had this amazing finding that 90% of the people who are fired from their jobs are fired for non-technical reasons. Translation, they can't get along with other people. They get some anxiety, they perceive some threat, they explode, and, well... They lose their job. And he called this particular response the amygdala hijack. And what he meant was that that lower part of our brain, that fight or flight part of our brain, uh, what we might call the reptilian part of our brain that doesn't really think through things very well, takes control of us. And we respond in ways that are not appropriate to the situation and are more thoughtful, prayerful self and, and brain never gets in the act. Anxiety can do that to us. Well, fortunately for all of us, the Bible, I think, says a lot about living in anxious times and an anxious world. Because quite honestly, I can't think of a time when we didn't have anxious um, uh, situations in our world. In fact, um, some years ago, I gave up watching CNN because there was always a crisis. And I turned it on the other day and it hadn't changed. We've always lived in anxious times. But anxious times have always been here. So here's the Bible's take, I think. It goes all the way back to the garden. Now, you would think Adam and Eve aren't living in much anxiety. God has given them 
a place to live, uh, giving them a job to do to take care of the trees in the garden, uh, to take care of the soil. God has given them a prohibition. Now, you can eat of any of these trees, but that one you can't eat. So they've got a job, they've got some limits, and they've got a great deal of freedom. It seems like a low, fairly low level of anxiety. Well, that's when the serpent comes in. He is craftier than any other animal the Lord God has made. And at this point, I want to stop and remember a story that Pastor Michael in New Heights likes to share. It's the story of a very famous theologian, Karl Barth. He's giving a lecture one day, and at the end of the lecture, a woman raises her hand and says, Do you think a snake really spoke in the garden? And his response was, Madam, it is not important whether or not the snake spoke. What is important is what he said. And basically, here's what he said and raises and heightens their anxiety. He says, you can't count on God. You can't trust God. God's holding out on you. There's more that you could have, but God's not giving it to you. And so if you want everything you can have, you're going to have to go out and get it yourself. And as he plants that seed of high anxiety among Adam and Eve, we know what happens. Sure enough. They go across the boundaries God has given them. They act on their own to secure in their own power, their own future. And if you don't mind me saying, all hell breaks loose and sin and suffering follow. Now, when theologians talk about this, they often call this the fall. And, and I don't have any objection to, uh, to them calling them that. But interestingly, when you talk about the fall, there are kind of two different ways to look at it that are different. And their ramifications are different. One is to look at the fall as if it's a, a prescriptive. In other words, Adam and Eve messed up, so the rest of us are doomed for eternity to mess up. And, and many people and theologians uh, look at it that way. And, and I'm not saying they're wrong, but I'm saying doubtful that Jesus looked at it quite like that. Because there's a Hebraic way to look. There's a Jewish way to look at the fall. And that's to say it's not prescriptive because this happened to them. It has to happen to us. But it's descriptive to say... What can happen to them can happen to us. And when it does, this is likely what's going to happen. This describes what happens when we act out of our anxiety, when we act out of fear, when we respond, uh, when we are threatened in a way that uh, goes beyond what God has given us. And so it describes the situation that follows. So I think that's helpful to me if it's descriptive and it says, I need to learn what happened to Adam and Eve. So that I can learn about myself. And so I can avoid in as much as possible not to repeat the same mistake that they made. So we raised the question this morning. Why didn't Adam and Eve in their anxious situation make the exact wrong choice? What happened to them? Well, there's a number of traditional explanations. Let me give you a couple and then give you my personal theory. Uh, one that's been around for centuries is it was just hubris or pride. You know, the snake said, if you eat it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God. And so the theory is, well, they wanted to be God. And so in their pride, they took the apple and they became God. And there's lots of verses and stories in the Bible that condemn pride. I don't recommend it for anybody. But is that really what's going on here? Because... Interestingly, there are others who look at it the opposite way, and they said it's not that they think too much of themselves. It's that they don't think enough of themselves. They devalue who they are as human beings, beloved and created by God. And and because they think so little of themselves, they get so fearful 
that they have to uh, manipulate and try to exceed uh, the boundaries that God has given them. And that actually their problem is not their pride. Maybe their problem is just um, um, what we've called acting like an orphan, misreading their situation, not realizing how much they really are loved. Those are both possibilities. But I want to add a couple more today. The first one I'm just going to add in passing. And you can kind of turn it off for a moment if you want, because this is for me, not for you. But I think it's interesting that one of the things the serpent does is the serpent gives, gets Eve into a conversation about God. What God has said, what God hadn't said, and why God may or may not have said it. And so all of a sudden you find Eve and the serpent talking about God, and she's no longer talking with God. She's no longer listening for what God might be saying, because if, if the in accounts in the Bible are correct, all she has to do is wait in the cool of the evening uh, uh, toward the end of the day. God's going to come walking through and you can talk with God about whatever the fruit in the middle of the garden or, or whatever you want to talk about and hear where God is. But she doesn't do that and instead engages in what we might call some sort of theologizing about what God might want or not want and what the reasons God might have for it. She talks about God instead of with God. Now, I tell you this because for me, that's an occupational hazard. On Sundays, I talk about God all day long. I start at 830 in the morning and don't finish till past six o'clock at night. And the temptation is that I will talk about God as if God is some third party way out there and not bother to listen to see what God is moving, saying and where and look to see where God is moving in my life, in our world. So to me, that's very significant that what the snake pulls off is to make God an object and no longer a party to the relationship. But that's not really what I want to talk to you about this morning. Here's what I really think happens. This is what I think led Adam and Eve to make a poor choice in the face of anxiety. It's simply this. They don't trust God. They don't trust that God has their best interests at heart. They don't trust that God wants only what is good for them and that God cares deeply and intimately about their situation in the garden. They get the sense that God is holding out on them, that there's more they could have. And for some reason, God's not given it. And so they're going to have to go and get it themselves. And when they lose trust in God, then it spirals downhill. Sin and suffering multiply and abound. Now, it's. They're not alone and wondering if God is holding out on them. Many people, I think, feel that from time to time. I remember a survey. It was done 20 years ago. Some of you heard me, have heard me talk about it. It was uh, religious leaders and pastors who had suffered a fall. Now, when they talk in religious circles, when they talk about a fall, that's euphemism, which means they either uh, misappropriated funds or they engaged in uh, illicit sexual activity. And so they looked at all these leaders and basically what they found was that these leaders who had fallen had three things in common. The first one was this. They thought it would never happen to them, that they could never make a mistake like that. Second thing is they weren't in any sort of accountability relationship. No face-to-face relationship where somebody could say to them, are you sure about that? Or I'm worried that you might, or have you thought of it this way? No way. They were free agents and they were captains of their own ship, masters of their own fate, making all their own calls. Then the third one, which most interests me, is every single one of them, according to the survey, survey believed that God owed it to them. They were working so hard for God, doing so much that God owed them more money, 
or the quick hit of, uh, of sexual release, that they had it coming. God was holding out on them and surely now would want them to have this. That's the sort of thinking that got Adam and Eve in trouble as well. Not trusting that where you are is what, where God wants you to be and what God has given you is what God wants you to have. And so when you exceed those boundaries and start to make your own way, sin is ready and ready to come through an open door. I've heard this definition of sin that's helpful to me. It says this, that sin is meeting a legitimate need in an illegitimate way. I mean, listen to Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount. Your father in heaven knows you need these things. Your father knows you need food. Your father knows uh, that you need clothes. Your father knows you need income. Your father knows you need deep uh, understanding friendships. Your father knows that stuff. But how are you going to go about and get them in a way that is trusting God to do God's part or in a manipulative way where we go and grab it for ourselves? And when we go and grab it for ourselves... We end up in trouble. Another helpful definition of the garden um, for me has been this. That one of the things that happens in sin is that it is our attempt to become more that we are. And with the result that we become less than we were meant to be. When we try to become more than we are, have more than what is given, and we reach out and go across those boundaries, we actually end up with so much less of life. Than what God intends for us. And I believe it all flows from the fact that we simply can't trust that our Heavenly Father is good and wants only good for us. And so we see the limits that God creates us with as obstacles to be moved in our effort to have everything that surely we deserve. But limits are actually given in the garden because limits are a wonderful thing. I think about this. As a parent, would you give your children everything they want at the time they want it in the way they want to receive it. Don't raise your hand. I'll have to call CPS. (laughs) That's not good parenting at all. You know, I don't care how mature eight-year-old Johnny is or how desperately Johnny needs to get from one event to another. Eight-year-old Johnny should not be given the keys to the car and, and let loose on 410. It makes no sense. We wouldn't do that. And neither would God give us something that we are not ready yet to have. God gives us limits and boundaries so that we can grow and learn life within boundaries. And just like a river within boundaries, we can flow more freely. Um, Farmer poet Wendell Barrett puts it this way. He said, what is the one thing that causes children to become good citizens, mature adults, Socially responsible people and able to connect emotionally with others in a healthy way. And he said the answer to all four of those things is this limits. The fact that we are raised with limits and learn to live within limits makes us healthy, responsible people as we go up. And so to, to circumvent out of a lack of trust, God's limits not only hurts the world, but hurts our own growth and we become less than we were ever meant to be. So the final question before us in this morning is if trust is the issue, then the question is how do we grow our trust relationship with God? Well, I suppose one possibility is for every one of us to go home and say, God, give me all sorts of good things in the week ahead so I can know that you are trustworthy and faithful and you want the best for me. And you can try that. But I got another way. Trust is built on relationships 
in relationships by experience. The way, trust with God's built the way any other trust relationship is. And so one of the ways to do it is not to ask for that in the future, but maybe first of all to start to recognize where it has been present already in our life. Instead of asking God for new experiences that confirm God's faithfulness, maybe the first place to go is to go back and review the places that God has already been faithful to us in our life. And we call that in a word gratitude. Gratitude is the practice of recognizing where God has already been good and faithful for us. And the more we recognize that, the more the trust is built. The good news I have for you this morning is that after 3,500 years, gratitude's finally coming to the front. I don't know if you've noticed there are, there are churches now that do what they call years of gratitude. Like it's the theme for the church for a whole year and, and some really wonderful things can happen in that. And then if you're on Facebook, you find at least one person every day that's like practicing a week of gratitude or a month of gratitude or they're listing three things today for which they are thankful. And I'd say that's long overdue. Because it's the practice of gratitude that's going to grow our trust, and that trust is going to grow our strength to live faithfully in times of anxiety. So I want to leave you with just three small practices to kind of get started in a life of gratitude. First one is this, that the moment your eyes open in the new day, whether it's at 3 a.m. or 6.30 or whenever, uh, it's time to pray a prayer. The, the prayer the Jews have used for centuries goes like this. I'm grateful to you, O Lord God, for returning my soul to me with compassion. The way I say it when I wake up in the morning is, thank you, God, I'm alive for another day. And to start with that, and every day starts with just a first thing after that. I hadn't left the bed, I hadn't gone anywhere. And it starts with gratitude. Second thing's a little harder. To learn to reinterpret and relook at the past in a way that you are grateful for things that have formerly happened, even if you, uh, even if the, the uh, sum total of the experience was not wonderful or is not wonderful today. So, for example, the first job you had, even though it wasn't your favorite job, it put food on the table. But what happens is we move on to other jobs and we think about how terrible that first job was and we don't give thanks for it. Or the school that we started at or the teacher we had and we moved on to another school or teacher we liked better and we forget the contributions that the other one made. Or relationship that we had earlier in our life and it was close and we found companionship or friendship or maybe even children came from it. But that's not the relationship we're in in the moment so we tend to throw out that relationship and, and devalue it. And one of the helpful practices of the Jewish faith is learning That whenever someone did something good for you, even if your opinion has changed or the circumstances have changed, you go back and give God thanks for that. And so this is what they taught the people of Israel. You are to be thankful for the Egyptians. And when I first heard that, I thought, you're crazy. The Egyptians enslaved them for years. God had to do these miracles to get them out of Egypt. But the rabbinic response was, when you first showed up in Egypt, when Joseph brought his relatives over... The Egyptians were hospitable and made a place for them, and that's why the Israelites grew. And so even though our relationship with the Egyptians soured over the years, we give thanks for that relationship we had. And so I'm learning to give thanks even for for theologies that I used to follow but I don't follow anymore, or books that I once read and were helpful, but now I'm not really sure they were right. And, And I'm learning to be grateful for that. This is the way the rabbis put it. Never throw mud in a well from which you have once drunk. 
If it once was used by God to bless you, even if things turn, the relationship turned, the job turned, the situation turned, you go back and you give thanks for that and you learn how to see God's hand in your past. So my encouragement is you start the day with gratitude that you learn to reinterpret uh, the past that's brought you to this present uh, through gratitude. And finally, that you simply practice giving gratitude in your current circumstances. And I know that's tough because for some people, their current circumstances are not too wonderful. But let me try this another way with you. I remember when our kids were small and we were busy, we would talk about in our family that we were going to get to something as soon as things slowed down. Yeah, kids are grown. Things have not slowed down. And we realized that if we didn't get to it, we were never going to get to it because it was never going to slow down. And in the same way, if you say, well, I'm going to give thanks whenever things turn around and they really start going good, I'm going to tell you, you're not going to ever give thanks. Gratitude starts with your current circumstances. And if you can't be grateful where you are right now, you simply will never find the time, our place, our situation in which to be grateful. It turns out after all these years, my grandparents had it right and my Sunday school teachers because they all taught me the same song. You might remember it at Thanksgiving. Count your many blessings. Count them one by one. And as we count the blessings today, look for the blessings that were in the past and start the day with gratitude. I think our trust builds. And the good news is when our trust builds, the ability to be the people that God has called us to become living in the face of anxiety with courageousness, boldness, and freedom that will come. But it starts with gratitude.